With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. Ed McGrogan, Steve Tigner here to discuss quite a bit today. Um, this is a certainly an off-the-court podcast, I would contend, in terms of what we'll be discussing, but it has plenty to do with you know what we will see on the court based off of... Uh, Based off of, I think, three pretty interesting topics here, Steve, and I want to lead with what really just broke about an hour ago, Tuesday morning, uh, Maria Sharapova getting her two-year Meldonium ban reduced to 15 months. Um, I was on a a call with uh, CBS radio earlier this morning, did like a a 10 minute spot about it. And, and as often happens in radio and not in the podcasting world, they end up taking that and taking about five seconds worth of it to actually use on the air. And what did go on the air was my remark saying that this is however you think of it, really the first day of the next stage of Sharapova's career. So uh, maybe I'll leave it, uh, leave that kind of hanging and, and, you know, what do we kind of, what did you think of the whole outcome, and, and really what does Sharapova do next from here? Well, I guess she has to be happy. Um, she had it reduced. I think, really, we got to the right result in a pretty roundabout way, and not really a way that that um, I think could serve as, as sort of precedent for any other case, and not really the way you want to go about it. 15 months is what she'll end up serving. Um, it was originally two years, so I think she has to be satisfied with that at this point. I think she wanted it originally wanted it much less. Um, it is a difficult case. She, you know, by the rule, she could have gotten one to two years for being negligent um, about taking a a banned substance that she didn't know was banned um, and and not going far enough to find out that it was banned a substance she had been taking. She says for medicinal purposes, but the tennis authorities obviously thought she was taking it for performance enhancement. Um, it's obviously a tough. It was a tough case in that way. She, you know, here's something she was taking for a long time. Legally, you can't really say whatever she, whatever reason she was taking it, meldonium in the past. It doesn't matter because it was, it wasn't banned, and suddenly it was banned. So really, all you can say is she was negligent, and where do you go from there? I think 15 months. That's about right. You know, you're legally and by the by the text of the by the letter of the law, she'd get one to two years. So 15 months seems right. That's and I think that's a significant punishment for what for what she for what she did. Um, the whole thing went through multiple, you know, went through uh, uh, an appeal process and and 
and I don't know if anybody would, would say that's the way it should have gone, but we ended up, I think, in the, I think to me, in the right place. Yeah, I mean, this is how a lot of a lot of cases of of this of this subject really seem to play themselves out. Really, in whenever CAS, the Court of Arbitration of Sport, is involved, and I I wasn't terribly surprised that they that they did um, relieve Sharapova of some of the suspension. Um, typically, I feel like they have they often um, try to almost arbitrate uh, meet somewhere that can appease both. This is kind of you know. As it says in the name, this is really an arbiter of of two parties, uh, you know, wishes on this decision, and and so in that regard, I'm not I'm not too surprised that it gets knocked down a bit. Um, as you say, you know, we're really quite a quite a ways into this 15 month ban now. Sharapova will come back um, scheduled to in April. Uh, this is before the French Open, before. You know Wimbledon the rest of the year. Um, I, I think you know to stay on the case for just a moment that the key was, as you say, there's there was still fault in in Sharapova and what she did. I think given the I feel like intensified microscope on tennis lately. Given um, you know we just saw kind of an outside the lines report on ESPN's website about the sport and why it seems to be almost unnaturally clean in terms of doping. Um, I, I think that tennis really is, you know, they have to uphold that precedent for um, for their players. And quite frankly, for a star player, that makes a pretty big statement as well. Now, this was taken out of the ITF's hands by, by CAS here, but um, it's, it's a decision that it seems like certainly the Cherapova you know, can live with here and she's going to, um, end up coming back still. I think this is, you know, important that she'll, she's basically still coming back kind of in the prime of her career. This was the key, I think, to, to, to having this is she lost really a, a portion of her playing days where, you know, clearly she was still one of the three, three, four best players in the world. And, you know, we'll come back to the tour, it's still sort of a, an uncertain time of where the WTA is, who is, you know, where, what is Serena's grip on all this. So, you know, it, it's going to be obviously very interesting to see how Sharapova performs when she comes back. But it's it's also, I think, a uh, pretty telling result for really tennis as a whole. Yeah, I think in, in there's there's positives from it that te- tennis was willing to to um, suspend a top player, a star player, and that um, it will serve as a, I think as a, as an example for other players in, in how seriously they take, um, you know, finding out what's banned and what's not banned and that that, that has to be, you know, that, that, that in itself is a good example. Um, I think also it's helped spur some, you know, some of the, some of the things over the last few years that have happened in tennis have helped, have, have helped a little um, spur a little more transparency from the sport. Now they're not going to – the sport is supposedly no longer going to allow people who test positive to um, keep that a secret while the, while the trial process goes on, while the investigation goes on. That, that will become public 
Yeah, those silent, the silent band, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, called silent band. So that hopefully, you know, I think transparency has been an issue with tennis. I also think, to, uh, you know, I don't know if outside the lines says that tennis is is lax. I don't know if I agree with that specifically as as a as compared to other sports. They do test pretty regularly. You, you know, you can always say you could do more. Um, for the money they have, I think they they focus on the top players. They do test out of competition. They do do blood tests. I mean, there could be more, but that's I think that's more than than others than some other sports do. Um, I think the one thing you could say is that, that the ITF maybe shouldn't do the testing. They should take it away and have it be an independent um, organization that does that. I think that's the one thing that's been shown with tennis is it is insular. And I think that came up with the with the revelation with after the Russian hack with um, therapeutic use exemptions that a lot of tennis players, Serena Williams, Venus Williams, Rafael Nadal, others have you know get to have had have used banned substances um, as medicine have gotten exemptions for that, which is which is perfectly fine. You can't deny athletes medicine because because it's also performance enhancing but at the same time you can it's obvious you can go too far with that you have to you know i think tennis has to has to watch that maybe that's more than anything the thing that needs to be watched and looked at are those exemptions yeah that was uh something that probably may have caught quite a few people off guard is even even hearing about that to begin with but it's true that those exemptions were in place um for specific reasons and for um, specific cases, individuals there. Um, just you know, one last thought on Sharapova. I, I kind of tied back to where you know where she ends up coming back and all this. I mean, what? Where do you see kind of the stage of her career really? And you know, she over the years, especially coming into you know, before all this happened, she had clearly made herself um, you know actually a clay court threat more than anything else, but really developed her career from into an all court player and, um, you know, had, had seemingly, um, maintained that status really on the top three, top five for, for quite a while now. And I think that was, you know, part of why, uh, you know, this, this, this would be troubling to her at any point in her career, but it, it really did seem to take her out at a, at a at a time where maybe Sharapova, you know, what was perhaps um, nearing a uh, you know a, a good push to to ascend to really the top of the game. There, I mean, where do you see her when she when she returns here, considering the landscape? Yeah, her career has been you know ups and downs. It's sort of a mini Agassi esque career with with injuries, and then to come back up, and then. You know, maybe some more injuries, or you know, when she always sort of rises back up every couple of, every couple of years, and maybe that was that that sort of cycle was taken away from her. I think it was she was it wasn't you know she she didn't have the prime of her career taken from her in these fifteen months, but it it might be an actually more difficult point. She's in her late twenties now. It's you know it's how do you come back from that uh, after ten years on tour, uh, more twelve years on tour. Um, Late, you're in your late twenties. You know, now it's it's not really a case of having your best years robbed from you, but it's a case of how much time do you have left to really get back and do anything. So I think I think it may have been one. Of, you know, that might have been the toughest time for a player like her to to get something to have something like that happen. But I do think 
you know, I don't think anybody, has, you know, it's not like the game has moved on from her really, or, or there's been a, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of new blood that's come in that she won't be able to handle. Angelique Kerber's number one, Sharapova has had, a, has obviously can play with her. So, so we'll see. It's just a matter of, of how long does it take her to get back, you know, to her top level? Is that all the way until 2018? Then mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's getting to be a while. Yeah, I think it's a good, uh, you know, we'll have plenty of time to get into Sharapova's, uh, <clears throat> stat, excuse me, scatcher of the game once we, we near her April return date next year. I, I want to stay on the WTA for a moment after hearing um, CEO Steve Simon's comments earlier in the week about um, really the future of the tour in general. And I and I and what I thought was almost kind of a message about tennis um, and, and perception on the sport Mainly, you know, the main point was that the matches just simply are taking too long. And that, you know, in and of itself may not be an issue. But um, when you consider what it's doing to the players um, and really what it's doing to attracting new fans to the game and retaining the interest in the game because matches can stretch out for, you know, I've always thought this about tennis is, you know, a long match is quite often running longer than, any any uh, length of a f- of a baseball game, a football game, it's rivaling those times, and it, it's hard to expect fans to maintain that interest not just in one day, but day after day after day throughout the whole weeks and months of the calendar year. And I think Simon, it you know he you know whether this is just spitballing or not, talking about you know how can we get matches to just be more uh, of a condensed nature. He was. You know, he mentioned actually, uh, ideally, want to get matches down to sixty and ninety minutes, which, uh, in many cases, seems like it's going to be hard to do given the format of uh, of tennis. And I bring this up with you, especially because you know, this has been a topic that's really been discussed in the sport, even at the lower junior levels for a while. That you know, do we need to kind of speed up the game, so to speak? And and how does that relate to the the future of the sport? Yeah, in the U.S., the USTA is, is making a big push to to reduce um, the time that it takes to play tennis recreationally. First of all, to get people with busy schedules to to play, to get kids who I think it's the biggest thing for 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 tennis here is to try to get kids who are have heavily regimented schedules to play to be able to play tennis to fit tennis in. And as it is now, they don't feel like they can, so they want to try to reduce that. They're, they've changed. Um, scoring rules in college tennis to no ad there's no warm-ups they have they play single sets and doubles um, so I think that's an overall push I think in in when it with Steve Simon I think the idea is I think the question is how much do you want to do to change tennis for television sake right uh, in the 70s early 70s tennis was willing to do anything that to get on TV that's what the WCT the the when it first went pro, um, they you know they used colored ball, colored tennis balls. They changed from all white to different to colored clothes. They brought in the tiebreaker. Um, they basically the whole idea was how do you it, tennis would be nothing if it's not on television was the idea, and that's still a question. Like if you know how much how much do you do to get on television? Is that the be all and end all? In the seventies, it was decided it was. Um, and that made the sport more popular, helped make the sport more popular. 
it's a fact. You know, it's if it's on TV. If it's not on TV, a sport, you know, you know, from a mass perspective, doesn't really exist. And I think talking to people at ESPN, they've the the way that tennis would slot in and get to be on prime time more would be if they could if if it was shorter and if they could anticipate the length of their of how much they needed to program there some you know in, in the US ESPN has been willing to and the BBC they're, they're willing to show the slams in their entirety the length of the slams but that's not something they can do more than four times a year that's not something they're going to do in prime time or throughout the course of the year I think Steve Simon's ideas and I think people at ESPN have the same idea how do we get how do we get tennis to be more to be to be easier to show more often on a more consistent basis and I think that's where these formats come in and I think it's worth experimenting with you know we nobody wants to see the grand slams go in that direction play super tiebreakers I don't think people even really like super tiebreakers that was the one thing when I talked to some rec players about shorter formats they didn't like that one um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think things even like four game sets and and no ad. I think it's worth experimenting with the tournament. See how people feel. See if it's a satisfying thing to watch. You see, you'll see more different players. Matches won't obviously won't be as long as long, and you won't have epic matches. But you'll see, you'll get, you'll see more different matches. I think. So I think it's I think it's worth starting to talk about and and and, and worth. An experiment with and see what people think. And now, one thing you could you could conceivably do is, and I've I've heard sort of whispers about this, is that you know you talk about you're not going to see a format like that in the Grand Slams, but there are there are so many other tennis tournaments that are played during the year that really are you know are following the same formats. But you know, who's to say you don't want to try a, a different a different playing format in a lower level tournament, for example? Now. We saw that years ago uh, that really did not work whatsoever with the round robin concept. But this, you know, that that's kind of a different. That was a different way to determine a winner. This, these new formats, whether it's fast four, uh, which is shown, um, you know, really touted by the Australian Federation, U.S. Federation. Um, you know, this is a way to speed up the game. It's kind of you're kind of going to a different end, um, and. You know, maybe that's maybe that's something that um, you 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 not only consider trying that in you know a, a challenger level setting, but maybe even a uh, you know some of the lower rungs of the pro settings as well. See how that goes, and and that ties into one other point that um, Simon made that I thought was worth paying attention to. Um, is really about the 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 value of of the WTA tournaments, the strata of them. You know, clearly, we know that the Grand Slams have the most currency for players, and for men's tennis fans, it's been known for uh, since the uh, early '90s. You can, I believe, you know, when the uh, the Super Nine, the Masters series, Masters One Thousand, it's gone through a couple different names. You know, when those were established, and those have clearly been identified by both fans and players, um, just as importantly as you know the second tier but still very important events and that's been a lot of confusion on the WTA side there is not that clear delineation of what are the most significant events from a tour perspective and i think you know more than anything else i think this is something that the WTA should hopefully be able to accomplish is to really just you know 
not they've streamlined their calendar to make it a little bit shorter than the men's game. I appreciate that, but I do think there is a lot of confusion as to unless you're really in the weeds of tennis like you and I are, you know, as to what are the 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 sort of the touchstone events beyond the slams. I think that's important really for the growth of the tour. Yeah, I think the one thing the ATP has done in its entire history that you can say was a definitive success was to create the Masters series and you know the top players as of the early as of you know the mid 90s turn of the century just weren't playing each other enough you didn't they they were all scattered all around and you didn't have tournaments that really meant anything other than the slams now you do and that i think that really helped develop this era that we're in to, to get all the top guys playing each other a lot and obviously you know nobody's played as often as Djokovic and Nadal and Djokovic and Federer etc and that didn't happen before that's i think that means mandatory tournaments, more mandatory tournaments. Everyone has to go to. Um, players sometimes complain about that, but I think it's it's essential. It's been essential. I think Simon is right that the, the WTA needs to to have more of those. They only have four. Um, one of them, which is in Beijing, which is is great for for the WTA in a way, and that in expanding it. But it's not great for any viewers here or in Europe. The main sort of lion share of people who would watch can't really see it um so i think more of those for you know you add a couple of those and you you time them around the slams that's the other thing that the atp has done well and and you advertise them as as the big tournaments you know you can see that the draws are good uh at these tournaments it's you know you can't really can't ask for anything more than than this beijing event as far as as far as players um so i think he's that's a definite for the WTA to look at. Yeah, it's it's a way to rebrand, I think, and um, and we'll see what uh, what comes of the of that discussion. But certainly something that I think uh, was worth looking at. You know, someone really willing and someone of his position uh, internally willing to kind of speak up on that. Um, Want to close with a player you just mentioned, Novak Djokovic. Um, speaking of playing a lot, he has done that for probably the past five years clearly been the best player in the world over um you know for the majority of this stretch uh you know for for a while there was uh you know last year and and really the start of this year you had even talks of you know Djokovic posting some of the best seasons of all time uh didn't turn out that way this year last year uh even he even managed to top his 2011 season the point of all this is in saying that Djokovic really had kind of gobbled up everything there was to win, and every sort of loss that he had was seen as this catastrophic event, sort of like Federer in his peak years when he, you know, he used to say he created a monster given uh, one of his Australian Open losses. I think it was to Djokovic in 08. Um, but Djokovic, you know, this has been a, his second half of the year has not been one for him to remember, even though there's been some nice results. He said he's now come out and said that the number one ranking in Grand Slam tournaments um, are not going to be the BL end all for him. They are not, you know, there is more, essentially, there is more to his career, there is more to his life than tennis. And, you know, there's certainly nothing wrong in saying that, obviously. It was just particularly interesting given um, a few things that Djokovic is really still um, clearly, I think, uh, on his best day, the best player in the world, the prime of his career. Um, Djokovic also has, you know, somewhat recently, 
to say you don't want to track track down number one and really the the mileage that comes with that is one thing, but I thought him saying that even slams um, are not you know this this willing to to give everything for um, in the future was pretty interesting. You know he's not that far away, obviously from from Nadal and even Federer in the in the Grand Slam title count, and I just. I want. It seems like we, in a way, subconsciously or not, are are kind of moving. Maybe as Djokovic just about to turn thirty, you know, coming up. You know, are we kind of sort of segueing into the 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 next phase of his career in a way? I mean, what did you take away from from Djokovic's comments? Which, um, you know, it seems like we're a long way away from him winning the French Open, even though it was just a few months ago. Yeah, yeah. As far as if you had. If he had said those words um, any time before the last month, or or you know, right after the French Open, it would have been really stunning because his, I think his mantra has always been anything is possible. I, I don't put any limits on myself. I would, can win, you know, calendar year Grand Slam. I can, I, I can do anything. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, everything is my goal basically. And this was sort of, this was obviously very different. He didn't, he says as he sort of says. He's not going to. He's not going to set any particular goals as far as his results. But judging from his last couple of months, it didn't surprise me. He's. It's. He's. I think he's had a a little burnout or hangover from from winning the French Open and all that went into that over the years, winning and winning four straight Slams. Um, I think he's had some personal problems. He's alluded to. Um, he's had a little bit of an injury. I think the Olympics were. Uh, from what has been said, was a tough loss for him in the first round. You know, he, he, I think he, he took it hard when he lost the bronze medal match to Del Potro in 2012. I think the last thing he wanted to happen was, was for that to happen again. Another loss to Del Potro in the first round this time. So we'll see if it's a temporary, the only thing I would say is, is this a temporary, is this a moment where he's just sort of thinking out loud about how he feels right now, or is this something is he going to try to find a way as he gets towards 30 to to motivate himself in a different way than he has? He's, he's been pretty dialed in for about five years. And I think it, I think it's hard to stay motivated at the level he is. He really, by the end of the French Open, he didn't have any rivals left. He didn't have anybody challenging him. He'd won four straight. First guy since Labor to win four straight. Andy Murray was number two, and he, you know, Djokovic has been beating him constantly for years. Nadal was way behind um he pretty much left everybody behind at that moment so how do you continue to motivate yourself and it'll be interesting to see i think Djokovic is looking for a way to do that to to enjoy tennis and and not just feel this not just feel pressure to win i think he's probably in the process of of thinking about that it sounds like he's gonna he may reassess his relationship with boris becker um so to me it's a it'll be an interesting how an athlete top athlete like that handles uh, sort of the next stage of his career. Um, so, so in, in that sense, I, you know, I found it interesting. Not, not so surprising after the summer he's had. Yeah, that's a, it's a good, uh, it's a good way to look at it there. And, um, and I, I think, as you say, Djokovic's, <clears throat> excuse me, his response to it really, you know, when, when we end up seeing him again, quite frankly, I think, um, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it will be until the, uh, you know, possibly the uh, Shanghai or Paris Masters or the World Tour Finals, but um, 
But I think Djokovic's re- response to it will really sort of signify where really the you know the the tour kind of goes from here. It, it's he has been in the driver's seat as you said for for such a long time now, and I think you make a great point about you know what was there left to do for, after the French at that moment. Um, he had been you know, targeting Roland Garros really since two thousand and. 12 I want to say when he finally when he first had the opportunity to complete a career slam um, that was put so prominently in his in his mind as the tournament that he had to win um, that would be dogging him throughout his career if he couldn't and you know once you know it's hard to imagine you say well what am I going to do next win another Wimbledon but that's in a way what Djokovic was sort of presented with um, after completing that Djokovic slam in a sense, as you said. So, um, you know, I certainly hope that that it is sort of a temporal thing, as you say, because, you know, we and I I have a I do have a hard time sensing that Djokovic would really kind of just sort of let things just fall where they may. In a sense, he he has proven himself to be, you know, one of the most mentally strong players over over, you know, really this 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 five-year run of his and and it would certainly be a shame if if we were in any way um you know kind of this chase this sort of fictitious chase of of Nadal and Federer and Djokovic and where their slam numbers are going to end up it's going to be you know when we look back on tennis decades from now at this era I mean this sort of this sort of race between those three and how it's all going to shake out. We, you know, we don't know the answer obviously, but I think it's, we're going to remember this as one of clearly the greatest eras the game has ever seen. So uh, to me, that's, you know, I guess the uncertainty and the anticipation. I think also Djokovic doesn't want to, he probably looks at, looks at Federer's slam total. Um, He's, you know, he's a few pack, he's a few back and he probably anticipates getting these questions about it for years. And he just probably, Right now, he just doesn't want to think about it. He doesn't want to have that, you know, you know, that sort of pressure for the seemingly probably for three or four years. He probably, you know, probably doesn't looks forward to that. Does not look forward to that, and wanted to, you know, I think maybe kind of get ahead of that in a way and say that he's not really, you know, don't ask me about that every day. I'm not gonna. I'm not thinking in those terms right now, and I don't want to think about it in those terms because it's too much pressure to. To have that as my goal, that's the Federer number of 17 slams. So, we'll, I think when Djokovic gets maybe with a little break, and when he, I think it's hard for these guys, hard for anyone, to say you're going to be relaxed about competing until you, and then go out and compete once you get back. Once he gets back into a slam, say in Australia or something, I think it'll, his, you know, he'll go back to a normal level of motivation. Is would be my guess. Yeah. And Australia has has treated Novak Djokovic very well over the years, as we know. Um, we will get to uh, more results based uh, discussion next week, I think. But we want to touch on these topics. So uh, for Steve Tigner and Ed McGrogan, we'll be back next week on the Tennis.com podcast. Thank you for listening. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 